included. I'm a youth group kid. Um, I developed in my faith and grew my faith because people, volunteers, poured into me as a little kid. And I know that's a lot of stories for a lot of people who've grown up in church. So if you are part of Grace Place, thank you so much for all the ways you love and care for the kids of this church. Um, you know, so selfishly as a dad, thank you for loving and caring for my kids and teaching them about how God loves them. Uh, if you are interested in being part of that ministry and just figuring out what it looks like to volunteer, um, we'd love for you to get connected and get some more information. You can use the connect cards I talked about earlier. They're in the seat backs on the back. It says Grace Place. You could circle that, put that in the uh, offering basket up here to my left um, later on, and we will get in contact with you. And uh, so obviously with Grace Place, with the kids, we have some extra training and background checks and things like that. It's not just like free for all. I like kids, so I'm going to go do it. We got some extra steps to keep everybody safe. Um, so just know that ahead of time, but we would love if you are interested in getting more information, we'd love to get you, uh, that information. So, um, thank you again for everybody in Grace Place. So like I said, today we're going to wrap up the book of James. Um, and I would just like to say, you know, thank you. I, I said this when we finished up Acts, but I just, I really encourage, and I'm very encouraged and thankful that we are a church, uh, that allows me and allows us to just take a book of the Bible and walk through it, uh, taking as much time as it's going to take to get through. I think there is great value. I had, a, I had a conversation this week with a bunch of pastors, and we were talking about preaching. I think there's great value in short series and topical series and, and kind of bouncing around and, and looking at a lot of different things in the Bible week after week. But I also think there is great importance in growing our biblical understanding to take a book and just walk right through it, to not skip the hard stuff, to not skip the uncomfortable stuff, but walk right through it. And I think it helps us grow not only in our own individual maturity, but in our biblical understanding of what God is doing with this book. So um, personally, I've really enjoyed being in James. I've never really studied it this in depth before preaching it. Uh, and I think this has been, you know, both a very encouraging time as well as a very challenging series. It's been an encouragement to me as we have kind of pushed back. I've said it as many times as I could as we've preached through this, that, you know, James has this rap of the, like, just do better, Christian. Just try harder, Christian. But really, we've tried to push past that to look to the heart and what is the, the motivation for the things he is calling us to, for, for us to live our lives as Christ followers. What is our motivation? What is our why? And over and over, bringing that motivation back to the gospel and the reality that of the grace that is available to us and the necessity for us, and that grace is, ne is necessary for us to pursue God. Pastor Matt Chandler says that the book of James is a book about progress, not perfection. It's a book about growing and taking steps to grow and mature, and we aren't going to do it perfectly. We aren't going to do it uh, consistently even. We haven't arrived, but we press on day after day. And so it's been an encouragement to me, and it's also been a challenge. If you have been in this book with us, it's a challenge to do what we saw in, in chapter 1, to not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. A challenge to actually examine our hearts and the why we do what we do, whether it's about relationships or finances or prayer, any of these things that we've talked about in these last couple of weeks, like what, what is our why? Why do we do the things we do? And how we come to God's word, what is our motivation in doing that? To examine our motives and be convicted by that. It's a letter that I'm glad that we have walked through as a church, and I encourage you, I, I hope that you will keep coming back to the book of James, because this is one that I think has continuous weight and influence and um, relatability, and th this book has been has really just affected me greatly. So, uh, as I said, we're going to wrap up today. we got the last two verses of James this morning. And so, as James finishes this letter, he doesn't go the way most letters finish out. If you read the New Testament, you have usually this kind of salutation. It's, you know, greetings from whoever I'm with. 
grace and peace and love to you. Keep on in the faith. Yours truly, Paul. You know, it's, it's usually there's some kind of closure to it. It's a normal closure to a letter. But James doesn't do that. James doesn't close out this letter in a way that we would think would be the normal, obvious way. He closes with a very serious charge and a strong reminder of the power and influence that we have as Christians by and because of the love and grace of Jesus. And so today we got just two simple things to, to focus on. It's today we're encouraged to examine our hearts and today we are encouraged to be people of grace. So, you know, simple, light and easy stuff that we got down pat because we're Christians, right? Uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in and finish up James. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Holy Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for another day and opportunity to gather and celebrate you and sing your praises and enjoy your presence and enjoy the community you have built and are building in this place. God, I thank you for all of the ways that you show up. God, I thank you for this creation that you have given us that didn't have to be the way it is. You didn't have to give us color and smell and taste. You didn't have to give us the uniqueness and the details, but you did because you love us, because it's who you are. It's a blessing. It's a, it's a grace to us. God, as we open your word this morning, as we wrap up this letter, you have work you want to do in our heads and hearts. You have things you want to encourage us in and challenge us in. And God, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers, that we would respond. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to comprehend, hearts to believe, and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So James 5, starting in verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from their wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need to examine our hearts and we need to be a people of grace. As James wraps up this letter, we've seen the tone change a couple of times. If you've been with us, he's changed the tone. He often addresses the brothers, brothers and sisters, the, the Christians, the followers of Christ. But then there was a section there where he kind of got away from that and, and he got kind of strict, kind of direct in his tone. But here, as he closes out this letter, the tone goes back to what has dominated much of it. My brothers and sisters, my family in Christ, those I care about, those I love, those who have been adopted and welcomed into the family of God those who are struggling, those who are enduring, those who may be suffering for the sake of the gospel or just may be suffering. You are in the midst of the hardness of living this life, and I have one last important thing I need you to consider. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, wander is to deceive, to stray away, to roam, to drift. There's really two versions of wandering that we see in the Bible. One is kind of a passive version. This could be the drifting, an unintentional roaming from what is correct. Kind of when you're driving on the highway and you zone out for a minute, and while you're driving, all of a sudden you feel the rumble strip because your car has drifted off into the shoulder and you kind of just have to swerve right back onto the road. It's that unintentional drift. In Matthew 18, 12, Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. 
That word astray is our word wander. Now, do sheep actively choose to do the wrong thing? No. In general, sheep are just not very smart. They get distracted. They wander away, not trying to do something wrong or to directly anger the shepherd. That's just kind of in their nature. So there's a wandering that just sort of happens, a drifting away almost unintentionally, a distraction, a lack of focus, a lack of paying attention. But then there's the second kind of wandering, the intentional choosing to leave the truth you know. This is intentional swerving of your car off the shoulder, leaving the comfort and structure of the painted lines and putting your car in the ditch. 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That will go on is our word, wander. Peter says something similar in 2 Peter 2. He says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have wandered. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. There are those who wander or drift as just being part, being human, flawed, and sinful, and there is a wandering, a forsaking, a choosing intentionally to walk counter to what you know to be true. James warns, if anyone among you wanders, meaning it can happen to anyone, there is potential in all of us for this to happen, to go astray, to drift, to even actively intentionally choose wrong over right, darkness over light, our own self-destruction over the establishing and building up of God in us. If you search your heart for even just a moment, you know, right? I mean, you know you. I know me. I know the potential of evil that lies within my heart. Even for the one who has been made new, for the brother or sister in Christ, for the believer who knows truth, who knows the grace of God, who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we know that there is still this pulling within us, this pulling of what the Bible calls the flesh, the part of us that desires our way over God's way. That potential, that pull lies within all of us. We wrestle with it until that day we get to Revelation 21. Until that day we meet Jesus, there will be that struggle, that wrestle. We know this is true. We just sung about it. Come thou fount. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We just sung a prayer to God, admitting who we are and what's in our hearts. Asking God, bind us to yourself. God, you know me. You know my heart. You know the parts of me that want to wander, that want to rebel, that want to go away. God, tie me to yourself or else I'm going to wander. Paul has the same conundrum. Romans 7, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Later on, just two, four verses later, he says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Even Paul, for all his faith, for his dedication, his understanding, the, the rock of faith that we consider Paul to be, he drifted, he wandered, he wrestled. James says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, it may be any one of us. The pull, the tug on our hearts is real. And that pull toward the wandering, the drifting, the rebellion, it may in fact reveal a very dark and scary reality. 
This book, this letter is all about faith that works. Right? If we have faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, it should matter. We've said that over and over again. It should matter. It should affect us. It should change us. Our faith should have hands and feet to it. It should have legs to it. It should show itself in how we talk, how we think, how we engage with trials and tribulations, how we engage with money, with community, with prayer, all the things we've been talking about for the last, like, 18 weeks we've been in this letter. Our faith should matter day to day. James said, I will show my faith by my works. But if that's the case, and I will show my faith by my works, then that means the flip, the invert of that is real as well. The wandering, the pursuit of darkness, the pursuit of selfish, self-righteous, sinful desires may in fact reveal you're not actually a Christian at all. That you were never actually saved. That you were just playing a part. Your actions, your words, they might infer, infer that you are saved. You might know how to look and sound like it and talk like it. You may even have yourself convinced it might seem like the real thing, but it's not quite reality. It's the person from Naperville who claims Chicago. Close, but not genuine. You didn't actually have your heart changed by the reality that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for your sins and rose again, displaying his absolute power and authority over everything so that there is now forgiveness and new life for those who actually believe both here now and in eternity. For some, the gospel is some information you have stored away. It's some stuff that you know. It's not a reality that has changed you. And your active pursuit of rebellion against the truth is the evidence of that reality. You know truth. You know the gospel intellectually. You just don't actually believe it. There is a wanderer in all of us. And because of that, we have to routinely and regularly be checking our hearts, examining our hearts. Like the yearly doctor's visit we go to. We don't go just because we're sick. We go to make sure everything is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Maintaining the right things, the right habits. Let's get ahead. If there are some issues that pop up, let's get ahead of them. Spiritually speaking, we got to do the same thing. We got to do it way more often than the once a year doctor's visit, or for some of us, the every other year doctor visit. Or for some of us who are hearing this illustration, you're now thinking, did I see a doctor before COVID? When was the last time? What is his name? We have to be on top of doing evaluations of our own spiritual health. We have to be examining our heart. And the best way to start that is to get in the Word. This is the thing that will clear out the gunk and clutter of your spiritual arteries. It is the clean, pure diet your soul craves. I'll come back to this verse every time we start a new series. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of the Bible is for all of us. David writes in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This book, this collection of letters and history and poetry and prophecy, this is the thing that helps to check your heart, to help examine your heart. It is the thing that will reveal the places within you that are stuck in the darkness, the places in your heart that you have grown hard and calloused by your own sinful desires. And see, that's the danger of sin. We minimize it. We excuse it. We compartmentalize it. It's just one thing. It's this hidden secret. I have it locked up. I have it contained. I have it under control. It's just this one thing. And my good generally outweighs my bad, so everything's fine. You know, everyone has their own vice. This is mine. Our propensity towards sin is a cancer spreading within us. And it will not stop until you are destroyed by it. It will spread and infect, it will harden your heart to that which is good and pure and beautiful. It will make you angry and jaded. It will ruin your relationships. It will steal your joy. It will take and take and take until there is nothing left and you are alone with nothing and no one. We talked last week about how we are a whole person. Mind, body, soul, all of them interconnected, all of them one affecting the other. And so if you think that you have this one corner, this one part of you where you are actively pursuing sin, and you think that isn't affecting everything else about you, you are either naive or arrogant. Either way, for the sake of you, for the sake of your relationship with God and with the world, let me tell you, your sin, no matter how small you think it is, no matter how small you have made it in your mind, how hidden you think it is, how tucked away, it is killing you. It is depriving you of a deeper, richer, fuller relationship with God and an existence in this world. You are cheating yourself of all that God has for you, and eventually your sin will find you out and will kill you. That is what is on the line here. These are the stakes. This is why it is so vital to keep showing up, to keep opening up this book. Because this book is the spotlight that can illuminate the darkness. It is the MRI that pinpoints the disease. And if we're being honest, some of us who grew up in church, some of us who grew up with this book, and we grew up in a house that had like four of them scattered throughout the place, we know how bright this light shines. We know how important this book is. And that's one of the reasons we don't want to open it up and read it. Because we know Because we know, because I know that if I open it up, if I sit, if I get myself quiet and I actually read what God has to say, God's going to show up and shine a light and I don't want to deal with it. We don't want to let go of the faux control that we have over our sin and rebellion. And so instead we busy ourselves. We find anything and everything possible to fill our time and our brain brain space with. I'm just too busy. I'm just too overwhelmed. I just, I can't, I don't have a set place to to get quiet. I know the book well enough. My relationship with God is fine. It's fine where it is. I don't need to grow any deeper. I don't need to go any farther. I don't need to read the Bible every day. Married folk in the room. 
if you just decided to one day stop talking to your spouse, like you're just done, like this is the relationship, we're not getting any deeper, this is it. What's going to happen to that relationship? It's going to die. It will suffer and die. In any relationship, if you just cut off communication from a person, that relationship suffers. And it will wither away and go away. Why would your relationship with God be any different? We aren't doing this memorize the Bible thing. We aren't doing this scripture card thing just as a gimmick to have on a Sunday morning. We're doing it because I want us to be a people who have the word of God in us and flowing out of us. This book is the word of God. The God of all existence who gave us his word. If we believe that to be real, to take it at what it says, that the God of all existence that keeps everything going, it's his words, his instruction, his communication to us. If we believe that to be real, why don't we love it? Why aren't we obsessed with it? And please hear me say we when I say these things. Because I struggled just as much to get into this book. I read Psalm 19 earlier, and later on in that psalm it says, God's word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. I say this all the time. What stuns me about psalms like that is that David wrote that and when David wrote that, he had like, I don't know, probably that much of a book. Like, when David talks about delighting in the law and that it's sweeter than honey, he had the history. He had the law. He had the stuff that makes us give up reading the Bible in a year, right? You, you're reading the Bible year plan, and you hit like Leviticus 7, and then you just tap out and you're done. For him, that is sweeter than honey. He doesn't even have the Gospels. He doesn't have God walking on earth. He doesn't have the dead being raised. The blind can see. The lame can walk. He doesn't have the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water. He doesn't have Jesus in the garden. He doesn't have the cross or the empty tomb. He doesn't have the church beginning. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit going through and people getting healed just by Paul's shadow. He doesn't have the writings of Peter and Paul working out what this whole thing is and trying to figure out how the church can be together. He doesn't have the book of James encouraging us to keep going, keep progressing, keep checking your heart. He doesn't have the book of Revelation and the comfort of God's victory. He doesn't have any of that. And yet David couldn't get enough. We have trouble opening the thing up or even remembering where it is between Sundays. You want to do a spiritual check-in? You want to know where your heart is at? You want to see where you are wandering? Open this and read it daily. It will shine and show you the places that you are wandering, the places you are drifting. And then you take that to God in prayer. And you open up to him and you confess these things to you and you confess these things to him and you bring it to God. And then you go back into the word and you let it bounce around in your head and heart. You chew on it. You dwell on it. You pray it back to him. You listen to it. You, you go back and forth with God and he illuminates things within you. 
the areas you are drifting, the spots you are wandering, you confess it, you bring it to him. And we saw last week, James talked about confessing one to another, praying for one another. As God illuminates these things and shows us these spots where we're wandering and drifting, the darkness that needs to get cleared out. We go to our close friends, we go to our spouse, we say, do you see this in me? I think God's calling me to check on this. Do you see these places where I'm wandering, where I'm drifting? And you confess to them and they to you. And now all of a sudden you have the word of God clearing out the spiritual trash you've been hoarding. And you welcome friends and family into that mess. And you begin to poke into each other's lives. You get to see and start seeing the places where you're wandering and they're wandering. And you say, let's get out of this darkness together. Let's figure this out together. And now you have those helping you walk, walking with you, holding you up, encouraging you, battling with you, helping you from drifting, keeping you alert, keeping you from ramming into the spiritual ditch. That's community. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. We all got to be able to admit this, that this is in us. This, this wandering, this pull, this flesh is in every one of us. So then if we know that, and we know the stakes are so high that this could eternally damage our entire relationship with God. Why wouldn't we do everything we possibly could to guard ourselves? How seriously do you take your own sanctification, your own pursuit of becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ? We have to be diligent in our own personal walk with God. We have to be diligent to be checking those things. But we do so, and we, we can't be so focused on ourselves that we ignore the world around us. So we examine our hearts, yes, but we also need to be a people of grace. Because James talks about bringing back the wanderer. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see a brother or sister pursuing things, saying things, posting things online that don't seem to quite line up with their faith. And you see that and you observe that and you got options, right? You can ignore it or you can say something. Don't ignore it. Let me tell you, it is so much easier to ignore it. But we can't. Just as you need to be careful and diligent in your own walk, so too we should be willing to speak into the lives of our brothers and sisters. Yeah, but Tim, I don't want to stick my nose in where it doesn't belong. I don't want to be a busybody. I don't have the right. It's none of my business. You're sitting at lunch with one of your friends. They're about to take a bite of a sandwich. You notice the underside of that sandwich is covered in mold. You're going to stop them or you're going to let them eat? You're going to stop them, hopefully. You're walking with your friend. They're about to step into the street. You see a car that's clearly going to blow that stoplight. They don't see it. You're going to yell. You're going to grab them. You're going to pull them out, pull them to safety, or you're going to let them get hit. So if we are concerned with the safety and well-being of our friends and family physically, why are we unwilling to address their spiritual suffering? This is the kind of thing that makes people really uncomfortable. We don't like confrontation as a people, right? The internet has given us this idea that we can say whatever we want, however we want, with no repercussions for our words. And some people are way too bold and too confrontational, I'll say that, right? We, we, we 
couch it in, I'm just being honest. I'm just telling you the truth. Saying those things does not give you the ability to be, or the right to be rude or mean or hurtful or spiteful. Right? We want to speak truth and address wandering, address potential issues with people when we see it happening in our brothers and sisters. But what we say and how we say it matters. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.15, Speak the truth in love. We are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We say things to build up and strengthen, not to cut down and hurt. So yes, we say hard things. We say things people might not like, but we do so in order that we are building one another up to be more and more Christ-like. And at times, we've said people are going to drift. And maybe they don't even realize it. All the more reason for there to be care and grace when we approach someone who seems to be wandering. We do this. We approach, we, we speak into one another's lives with care and concern and grace. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Hey, I heard what you said. I saw how you were acting. I read what you posted. Is everything okay? Because it seems out of line. It seems out of character with you. What's going on? It doesn't have to be a confrontation right off the bat. Now, if someone came to you and said that to you, how would you respond? My guess is it depends on who and how, right? Random person you don't know, it's hard to hear that. You probably brush it off. What about the close friend, the family member, the church member? Maybe you'd hear them, maybe not. If someone came to me like that, how would I respond? Knowing me, I'd probably try to justify and excuse my actions. Or depending on the who and the how, I could get real defensive and go Matthew 7 on them. Right? We all know Matthew 7. We've all caught it. Matthew 7, 3 specifically. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Hey, man, why don't you deal with the two-by-four sticking out of your own eye, and then you can come talk to me about the little bit of sawdust that I have in my eye, okay? Which, one hand, it's valid and true, right? Jesus is saying that and saying, don't be a hypocrite. But I will say, if you're using that, as a defense mechanism to avoid confrontation. If you're trying to avoid confrontation and actual truth being spoken to you in love, what you're really doing is manipulating God's word and revealing that something really is wrong in your heart. But what if that happens? What if I approach a brother and sister in love, in truth, I'm not trying to confront, I'm just trying to help, and they get defensive, now what? I point you to Matthew 18, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but Matthew 18 We'll tell you in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You approach, you handle it one-on-one -on -one personally. If they respond well, amen. If not, you continue to verse 16. If he does not listen, you take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two, of two or three people. This is not, I'm going to get two or three people who totally see my side and only my side, and we're going to go gang up on this person. This is about seeing progress happen. This is to help communicate clearer. This is to help get the conversation to move beyond name-calling and escalation. And if it needs to go beyond that, if the person is still fighting and rebellious and defiant, you bring it to the church community, we continue from there. That's a different sermon for a different day. The point is, 
If you see a brother or sister pursuing things we know is harmful and dangerous for their soul, we want to address these things for their good to see them strengthened and built up. And the truth is, this actually happens and it works. God uses us for this purpose, for this reason. He uses regular flawed people with logs and specks in their eyes to help draw each other out of darkness and back into light. If someone brings him back, is what James says, meaning that God uses us to bring people back from going astray. Not because we are all that impressive or powerful or the right person for the job, but rather it brings God all the more glory when he calls us into service and uses us to do amazing acts of grace and mercy and restoration. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God. We have the ability to be a gospel presence for people, to lift them up with powerful prayer, to shine a light in the darkness, to help keep someone from stumbling off a cliff, to save their soul from death, is what James says, from eternal separation from God. Not because of us, but because God used us. We were just paying attention and willing to step into the moment God presented to us. We have the chance and ability to do this, not to boast of ourselves or to prop ourselves up, but rather to show just how good God is. Not only did he save and rescue and call someone back from the darkness, but he used somebody like me to do it. With all of my flaws, with all of my failures, that's a gift of God that's something to be celebrated and rejoiced over. And so we, as God's people, must be willing to answer the rhetorical question that Cain asked God in Genesis 4. Am I my brother's keeper? Are you your brother and sister's keeper? Yes, Christian, you are. We are to help keep and protect and speak truth and love to one another. And that gets messy and hard and awkward. That's what the church does. That's what community is about. And when a person comes back from wandering, when they show up, we should be a people who are ready, waiting, and welcoming them. It does not mean we ignore or pretend nothing happened. Sin is real. There are consequences to that. We address those things. We have conversations. We take what was broken by sin, and we seek reconciliation and restoration. The church is to be a place where the sick come to find healing and the tired come and find rest. Those front doors are not ours to lock. We are not the people who get to decide who is and is not welcome in God's house because this is God's house. We are God's people. It is for him to decide these things. The church has to be a soft landing place for people because the stakes are too high. The consequences are too large. We're talking about eternity here. We're talking about complete condemnation and separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever. There are eternal and real consequences for the way we engage with the people around us. Our willingness to step into a moment, a conversation, an interaction, a relationship, and be for someone an agent of grace, mercy, and forgiveness has eternal results. We can't be the people who create hurdles and obstacles for others to get to the cross. It is the job of God's people to flatten the road, to clear the debris, and invite and welcome anyone and everyone who is seeking rest. And for the one who brings them back, they will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
that phrase, cover a multitude of sins, some of you it might be ringing in your heads because in Peter's letter, also to a bunch of Christians who have been scattered, much like James's letter, also to Christians dealing with hardship and persecution and chaos, in 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly keep because love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving earnestly. Keep loving eagerly. Keep loving deeply. Keep loving continuously. Keep doing it, Peter says. It's assumed that that's what we do as Christians. We love one another. Keep doing it, he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. How do we know that? Jesus told us in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus showed us that love truly does cover a multitude of sins because he loved us so much that he laid down his life for us and in doing so covered the stain of our sin with his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Love keeps going. Love keeps forgiving. Love keeps welcoming. Love keeps showing grace. Love keeps showing mercy. Love keeps going and going. That's what we experience through Christ. That's what we receive through his death and resurrection. And that is for us as individuals. That is who we are to be as individuals and the church. A people who daily remember that grace we have received and who are driven and led by that grace. A people defined by that grace. James wraps up this letter here and he tells the people, look, you are prone to wander. The world finds ways to creep into our heads and hearts. It finds ways to creep into the church community. Be a people of grace. It is not always easy. It is not always pretty. It takes work. It takes intentionality. It takes us doing a regular inventory of our own selves. We have to be a people who examine our hearts and be willing to let God shine a light in the dark places and give up that control we think we have. And as we do these things, have grace for yourself and have grace for one another because Christ has already given you his grace. This has been a letter about progress, not perfection, about what it looks like to have a faith that works. A faith that matters. A faith that is real. And James's final instruction is, be a people of grace because you received grace. Be a people of love because you know firsthand that love, love covers a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people who know this, live this, and continuously experience our faith working itself out. I pray that we are humble enough to examine our hearts, and as we do that, be bold enough to be a people of grace. Let's pray. You are the God of community. You have eternally been community within yourself. And you have made us as a people, as individuals, as humans to thrive in community. You have made us to be in community with one another. And since day one, it has been messy and awkward. But you have built your church. It is not perfect. We are not perfect. 
We don't love each other well. We don't show grace to each other well. We don't show love and grace to ourselves all that well sometimes. But you won't give up on the church. This is your design. This is your plan. This is what you have called us to be and do. This is how you shine with the light of your goodness in this world through us. God, help us to love well. Help us to be a people of grace. Help us to live like we know that love covers a multitude of sins. Because we experienced it firsthand. Christ died for us and covered our sins. Every one of them, even the ones we haven't come up with yet, they're done. God, help us to not lose sight of the gospel and the good news and the let that filter and affect everything we do. And when we wander, when we drift, whether it's unintentional or intentional, God, I pray that we would have people around us. I pray that we would be a community that would call each other back, that would help right the ship, that would help get us back on the road. And as we do that, as we speak truth in love to one another, as we sometimes say hard things to each other, help us to have soft hearts. Help us to feel those things. And help us to say those things out loud. Learn to wander. Lord, I feel that, God, learn to leave the God I love. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what's in us. God, help us to let go of the places that we think we have control. Help us to, God, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to get into your word and let it do what it does to shape and change and call us back to yourself. Give us the boldness to open your word and let it shine the light into the dark spaces, into the ugliest places. God, there's a work you want to do in every one of us to make us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. God, it is sometimes hard and hurts, but it is for our good. Help us to remember that. Help us to pursue that even when we don't want to. God, you have put this community here. You have built this community, and you have kept it together in all kinds of different forms and fashions for many, many, many years. We stand here, we sit here, we're here this morning because of generations of people who have been faithful to the gospel, faithful to community, faithful to call each other back from wandering, faithful to welcome people back in that have wandered away, that have run away. God, help us to continue that as we stand on their shoulders. Help us to continue to be that place, to be that soft and welcoming place for anyone and everyone who is looking to hear about the good news, that there is hope to be had, life to be had, grace to be had in a relationship with you. And God, as we hear that, as we try to model that and be that for people, let us never stop listening to that. Help us to not tune that message out because every day we need to be reminded that there is more hope and grace to be had through the cross of Christ. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.